Welcome back to the business of biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the latest installment of our Cell and Gene mini-series featuring my friend and colleague, Aaron Harris, who's chief editor at CellandGene.com. How are you, Aaron? I am well, Matt. Good to be here. Awesome to have you back. All right. So today, our guest is a guy I interviewed not too long ago for an article in the Outlook issue of Life Science Leader. And I enjoyed the conversation with him so much, I asked him to join us here on the Business of Biotech. His name is Brian Culley, and he's CEO at Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Lineage currently has three cell therapy candidates in its pipeline targeting AMD, spinal cord injury, and non-small cell lung cancer. And for his part, Brian is a biology guy, having earned his master's in biochemistry and molecular biology at UC San Diego, following a biology undergrad at Boston College. And in fact, he did some drug development research early in his career, but it wasn't long after earning an MBA from Cornell that he took the biotech business path. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Hi, Aaron. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Oh, we're really thrilled to have you. And I, I want to start with the point that I just mentioned that you've got these biology chops from your undergrad and, and your and your master's. And then, you know, you, you did the, the Cornell MBA thing, I think in the early 2000s. And it looks like, you know, if you kind of follow your tr- career trajectory on paper, it looks like you took a pretty hard right turn into the business side of, of biotech. Uh, is that correct, first of all? And if so, what, what prompted that move? Uh, that, that move was about a, a four-year right turn. Uh, okay. So, so it's a long meandering <laughs> curve. But it was, it was actually driven by an article that I read about something called gold-collar workers. So we all know about blue-collar and white-collar. And gold-collar workers uh, were people who uh, bridged science and business. And they said, oh, they're going to be so valuable in the future. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. I'm interested in business. I really enjoy uh, the life sciences. And so I, I put in, pa- in place a plan to transition uh, out of basic research and into business and become one of those gold collar workers. And uh, so that meant getting an MBA and that meant doing some, uh, some work in technology licensing and, and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's really worked out. I mean, I, I, every day I'm relying on my biological background and training in trying to make the best business decisions. So it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I admire people who have a, a, a more solid life plan than than I do. <laughs> so between your uh, between your tenures at, at Mass Therapeutics and Artemis, uh, you spent some time as, and I'm I'm quoting you here. I, I believe this was either on your bio uh, at Lineage or on your LinkedIn page. You called yourself an unhurried evaluator of biotech CEO positions. So you spent like 18 months between those those tenures and your your uh, your your move to Lineage. Uh, what were you doing for those 18 or so months, and and what led you to take this new role at, at Lineage? Yeah, that does come from my uh, from my LinkedIn page. It's still That's there. It. Um, so I had had an, an exit, so I had a little bit of breathing room financially, and and I was really looking for the right opportunity. So the the unhurried evaluator of uh, CEO positions was, was sort of a signal to say, I, I, I'm not looking for a job. I'm looking for a really a, an exciting opportunity to develop therapies. Uh, that search that I was conducting, that sort of lazy search, uh, was done in parallel with Artemis. Artemis was a one-person company. I had a, a dozen consultants, um, but it was it was sort of charity. Uh, I was working in malaria, and it was uh, temporary to keep me engaged and and involved in the space. And then, then I got a phone call. And, and coincidentally enough, 
the phone call from the recruiter to talk about lineage was driven by seeing my LinkedIn page. So for those of you who put your resumes on LinkedIn, it sometimes works. So uh, I went through the process. I was excited about the opportunity to, to you know, bring some change to, to the company and, and do some good things. And, and it's all worked out. I've been there for about two years now. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so when we last spoke in, in this, no, it was September, I believe it was early to mid-September we spoke, we talked about the the likelihood of new regulatory precedents being set sort of in the wake of Operation Warp Speed. We spent some time talking about how, you know, the, the FDA in particular has become a bit more fluid. Uh, and you went on, I think, at, at length about how easy uh, you're finding them them and other regulatory agencies to work with. Um do you do you anticipate that this sort of setting a, a long term precedent in the in the cell and gene therapy space? Uh, maybe. Maybe. So, I think what we're seeing is is certainly unprecedented. So there is uh, abundant speed, and I would say flexibility, um, and there's a great reason for that. We've got thousands of people dying every moment, and so it is clear that we need to, to you know, move, move these processes in a different way. Whether that trickles down and establishes some new policies and, and procedures and habits uh, with respect to regulatory agencies interacting with sponsors is, is hard to say because you know, much of this is attributable to COVID and COVID is thankfully temporary. Um, drug development is not temporary. Uh, people continue to get sick. So I think what we're going to see is that there are some aspects of this uh, you know, parallel universe that we're working in that, that will be carried over and that'll show what is possible. Uh, but I also think that there are trade-offs. And so there, there, we'll probably end up somewhere in the middle when everything is, uh, is all settled and back to some degree of normalcy. Yeah. Do you anticipate? So, I mean, if, if we dig into that a little bit deeper, I mean, COVID obviously is, is temporary, uh, Hopefully, right? I mean, there's quite a few folks are kind of pinning the endemic, potentially an endemic label uh, on on COVID nineteen. Um, I, I speak with a lot of folks who, who talk about you know COVID being it right now, but down the road there'll be another it, right? There'll be another another global health scare. Um, I guess what elements of the 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 speed, the agility that we're seeing right now, do you anticipate might might stick, right? Might might stick and put us in a better position uh, for the next pandemic. I think I think one of the changes is that you know just a, a year ago there really wasn't there was neither a lot of activity in infectious diseases nor even knowledge, and now it seems like everyone has got uh, you know at least passing familiarity, if not you know outright expertise. <laughs> um, so I think what there will be is a greater appreciation in the short and medium run about how important it is to have the tools and readiness in place to deal with these kinds of events. Um, they're rare, and maybe 100 years from now, if there hasn't been uh, another massive one, uh, maybe we'll sort of get lazy and you know the, 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 the capitalistic environment that we're in is gonna be on to other things. But I, I think in the medium term, you're gonna see a lot of people say, we, we know that there's a problem here. We know that it's never going to go away because it's fundamental evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're going to benefit as a society and as a world that there will be greater attention. Now, whether that's going to come through government support or the private sector, I, you know, combinations, 
Uh, I think that's hard to say, but I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of activity working in all aspects because what happens is every time there's a problem, you've got all these entrepreneurial minds thinking about solutions. So you're going to have people working on new ideas around shipping and handling and, and logistics and, and how to, how to obtain uh, genetic sequence information faster and, and all, every aspect you can imagine. And so every, every page of, of all these new companies is going to have something about the pandemic, uh, which is great. We need that. We forgot. We got lazy. We got comfortable because it wasn't happening. Humans aren't great at thinking about statistical uh, matters. And so I think we're going to see uh, you know, just a, a massive improvement investment in infectious disease. And hopefully some of that will trickle over to other aspects and areas of healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So Brian, earlier you talked about, you know, how regulatory agencies and sponsors are, you know, moving processes in a, in a different way. Now for emerging Celengene companies that are preparing for say their first meaningful FDA engagements, what if, what is lineage learned so far since the onset of COVID, what has changed? What have you learned? What can you tell? What can you tell our listeners who come, who are coming from emerging cell and gene companies as they're working toward those FDA engagements? Uh, well, I mean, everything is COVID, COVID, COVID right now. So if you happen to be working in that area, um, you have more, I'm going to say, privileges and opportunities than companies in other spaces. So um, I don't think it's going to continue for a lot longer. We, we, we can see uh, some light at the end of the tunnel now. So I, I think we will have some return to uh, more balanced engagement, but you, you get to cut, you get to go to the front of the line. Um, a company like Lineage would not have been able to have uh, a phone call with, um, you know, we had a con call with BARDA and the NIH and the FDA or representatives from all these different agencies. There were some agencies I'd never even known existed. Um, you know, 20, 25 people on the phone with us because we had a conversation around COVID. Um, we could never have done that with other areas. It just doesn't work that way. So I think that companies that are working in um, urgent areas, and, and I'm really talking about, you know, the pandemic in that regard, um, they've got an opportunity to kind of cut to the front of the line and, and you know, demand attention and conversations and they'll get that time. And others, you know, frankly, we, you know, we have to give them a little bit of breathing room. There's, there's something quite important happening. Uh, but I do think that next year we're going to see a return to normalcy and you'll find normal engagements, right? And that means, you know, you, you've got your respective division. We're in cell and gene therapy. So, you know, the people that we interact with in that division are different than the people who you interact with in infectious diseases. And, um, you know, we're going to have to uh, make sure that, um, you know, we borrow best practices from infectious diseases and see if we can apply them into cell and gene therapy. Another uh, another COVID-related impact that we discussed last time we talked, Brian, was uh, the disruption to clinical trials. And from what I understand, you guys just completed enrollment for your phase one, two, a clinical study of OpRegen, the OpRegen cell therapy for uh, AMD. Mm -hmm, correct. So congratulations on that milestone, by the way. Um, so you've got you've got these three. I referenced earlier. You've got these three uh, candidates in the clinic at, at various stages. Can we talk through how uh, COVID may or may not have disrupted your clinical progress for for each of those candidates and and why? 
Yeah, I mean, our, our lead program, the most uh, the most notable for us is uh, the, the retina program uh, that's to treat dry age-related macular degeneration. And um, interestingly, ophthalmology was the hardest hit specialty, right? You've got, you've got people who, for the most part, are taking elective appointments. So maybe instead of dry AMD, they have wet AMD and they're getting an injection into their eye every month. And they think, well, you know what, now's not a good time to go to the clinic and get that injection. And so you have people who are skipping their appointments um, and you have, and, and, and that allows their disease to progress. Uh, and, and so it, it, it was really bad for ophthalmology. Everybody just kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll wait till things get better. Yeah. So, um, but we were lucky, uh, frankly, we, we had sites in both the U.S. and Israel where we were enrolling patients. And it seemed like they were out of sync when things were really locked down badly in Israel we still had some activity in the U.S. And when things got really locked down in the U.S., we still had activity in Israel. So um, we, we also, when I joined, I, I pushed to open additional clinical trial sites and so that we had more opportunities, which helped. And we're working in a disease for which there is a long, slow uh, measurement, right? This isn't, this isn't like an infectious disease, which is acute. We're looking at changes that occur in the eye over about a year, and so if somebody is supposed to go in for a six-month assessment or a nine-month assessment and they decide to skip or delay that assessment, you know, we've missed a data point and that's unfortunate, but it, it doesn't make, it doesn't render that data meaningless. It just means there's going to be a, a few points, uh, data points that are, that are absent. So we were able to continue enrolling patients, which was great. And, and in fact, we, we introduced some processes and, and protections in order to get um, in order to get patients onto our clinical trials safely, and I'm quite proud that we were enrolling uh, the last six patients on that clinical trial that you referenced. We enrolled those patients in just two months, and, and compared to the first six, it took 12 months. So 12 wow. months versus two months. Obviously, we had figured out how to navigate within a COVID environment, and uh, and and that's what you that's what you need to do. You, know, you just got to adapt. You can't just you know throw your hands up and say, "I'll I'll wait." It's too expensive to wait. Uh, and so you have to come up with solutions. And so we were fortunate that we were able to come up with some clever ideas and, on how we could get patients safely to be, to be treated and monitored and then complete the study and, and move into a follow-up phase, which is where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Has there been any disruption to your SCI or non-small lung cell uh, cancer uh, pipeline? Yeah. Um, so fortunately, in the spinal cord program, we were not actively enrolling any patients. Um, we just... We just went to phone calls. So we had patients that are in two or three years of follow-up. So we can call them up and say, can you tell us about your, you know, how are you doing, any complications? Um, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really change the big picture if we get an assessment at three and a half years versus three years, because in almost every case, we don't expect there to be any change in those, in those individuals. So we were kind of safe with our spinal cord program. Uh, in oncology, it's a little frustrating because we've got just two patients left to enroll. And, uh, and those two sites in Birmingham and Southampton have been closed, or maybe the sites are open, but then the labs are closed. And so you can't, you can't ship the blood to test it. And so um, we still have those two last sort of vestigial patients that we're looking forward to enrolling when things get a little bit better. But, you know, I, I saw news this morning that, um, you know, the first uh, vaccine has been approved in the UK. So hopefully we'll be able to get those sites open. We'll get those patients enrolled and we'll put them into follow-up as well. So yes, we've been impacted. All of our programs have been impacted in some way, but we are absolutely not at a, at a stop. We've, we've been able to you know, continue to find ways to move forward 
and collect the information that we need to make the decisions that are that are happening now. Yeah. As you, so Brian, as you, you're talking about the the clever ideas and that that you've introduced some processes and protections um, as a result of what has happened with COVID nineteen. You know, as you, what have you learned from these disruptions that are helping you stick the ideas? What are they? What can you tell our listeners about what has worked for you as a result of the disruptions from COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really sad when we heard that, you know, one of our patients developed COVID um, and, and she's done fine. She's, she's better um, and that's great. But I think at the, the end of the day, people need to adapt, right? Everybody's a professional. Everyone cares about the patient. And so people find a way. It's, it's about ensuring that you have a, uh, a culture of, of seeking a way forward rather than, than just saying, I, I can't figure it out. And, and so, for example, we had a patient who um, they were not eligible for immunosuppression, right? So typically, when we administer cells to the patients, we also reduce the uh, activity of their immune system just to make sure that the cells will engraft. And then we take that immunosuppression away. So it's about a 90-day course of immunosuppression. And we had a patient who, um, it, it didn't make sense in light of what their professional um, uh, uh, activity was and, and, and um, their particular situation, it was not recommended that they take immunosuppressive therapy. And so ordinarily, they wouldn't be eligible for our study. However, um, they really wanted to be on the study. And so we were able to find a way to get that patient on. So that, you know, on one hand, just on a minor way, okay, great. You've got enrolled a patient or you thought would not be eligible, but think about this. We're now going to collect data from that patient who is getting treated with our cells without any immunosuppression. So we're going to learn whether it's possible to administer our cells with no immunosuppression. We would not have had that opportunity. We would not have asked that question and tested the patient in that way were it not for the curious situation with COVID. So, you know, doors can open unexpectedly if you kind of approach it with a how do I figure it out attitude rather than just saying, well, I can't, I can't get anything done. You know, we're just going to have to push another quarter, push another quarter. And, and we really try and staff the organization with people who have that attitude. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. How would you uh, sort of characterize your approach at going about that, Brian? Is it is that like a, a course of how you interview? Is it a course of how you train? Is it a matter of, you know, where you, where, from where you recruit? What, what's some sort of practical advice you can offer up around making sure that you staff up to that can do, you know, move forward? Yeah, it's tough because um, it, it reveals itself so quickly after someone's in the organization, but it is difficult to find it before you hire someone. So everybody can tell a good story in an interview. It's only, one, it's only when you can evaluate their behavior after they're in the organization. Um, you know, there is a tone at the top, right? You, you know, it's if, if, you're, if, you, um, <laughs> if you're yelling at people and, and you're shooting messengers and everything, 
you know, that's going to filter through the organization. But if you if if you encourage and welcome people to tell you, okay, here's what's going on and it's bad news, and you say, okay, what are your ideas for for fixing that? Um, you establish a culture, you establish a pattern of behavior, uh, which encourages people <clears throat> to share problems earlier, which means that they can engage more resources in the solution. And if you don't blame them after the fact, um, it, it becomes a very um, positive environment for people to feel like they're part of a team and working together and collaborating. And ultimately, that's going to produce greater output for an organization. Occasionally, occasionally you make a mistake. And you get somebody who, you know, just doesn't really fit in that well. And that's okay. You, you know, you just have to have the courage to filter it out. These things tend not to get better. But uh, we've been very fortunate that, that we've been able to attract the right kind of uh, employees who just love to, uh, you know, love to figure out how, how we're going to get to the goals. How are we going to get these therapies moving forward with whatever restrictions, whether they are capital restrictions or they are, um, you know, coronavirus related restrictions or... Sure technical restrictions you know you just have to find a way yeah how many uh, how many people are on the lineage team now we have about 50 employees five zero okay great and uh what's the disruption been to your physical workspace of has the team been able to to work at, at the office um no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so almost everyone works from home we found out pretty quickly that um that they're effective you know another good point of hiring well um you find people who, who it's it's you know you, you don't notice the difference right i mean uh, our, our documents get filed on time uh, we're still incredibly productive um so there's i think there's some professional pride among the staff uh and so that that has worked out really well we have a large manufacturing facility in israel with about uh, 30 employees and you know sort of jokingly the people who work inside the gmp suite they are covered head to toe with with PPEs. Uh, I mean, they're in they're in clean rooms. They're in probably the safest place in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we have done for that facility, where they do have to be physically present, is we've just established shifts. You know, smaller numbers of people coming in and out. We do screening. Um, you know, even all the way down to hand sanitizer, all the cons- customary um, uh, steps that you would expect people to take to provide a nice, safe work environment for employees, and then. You know, we we ask, how how are you doing? You know, Matt, are you productive at home? Do you need a second monitor to be, you know, as good as you were when we were physically present? Uh, and then we try to do some social engagement too. We um, we had a, a wine tasting that one of our employees ran virtually for everyone. We've we've done some game playing and trivia contests. So every once in a while, we get together for an hour and hang out, and uh, and it, and it keeps people connected and it makes them feel that they're not uh, on an island and, and have been forgotten or abandoned. Yeah, try to try to replicate some of that water cooler hallway conversation that's so missed in a virtual setting. Absolutely. You mentioned when you were talking about uh, hiring problem solvers, you you briefly hit on you know not just scientific problem solvers but capital problem solvers perhaps. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about finance. What um, what what do the capital markets look like uh, to you as a cell and gene guy after the pharma and biopharma? Uh, industries have just been given so much attention of late. You know, we talked about regulatory attention and and you having to kind of wait your turn in line. Is it much the same in in, in finance? Well, it's been really uh, amazing. I mean, the biopharma industry has enjoyed a tremendous run. Uh, There are certainly ebbs and flows and and right now money is flowing. So uh, so we're in a good place. 
Um, and, you know, let's face it, people are always going to get sick. They're always going to want to get better. They're always going to want to feel healthier, feel younger. So um, we're not going anyway. The, the reputation, you know, of pharma comes and goes. Right now, it's it's fantastic, right? I mean, pharma is saving the world, and, and we're, we're lucky to have such dedicated individuals who are, you know, staying up all hours and, and coming up with solutions. So there's a lot of capital that's been moving, and, and it's been remarkable. I mean, I've seen some companies where I thought, wow, that is definitely an overpriced company. And then it goes up 100% from there. And I think, I this is why I run a company. This is not why, this is why I'm not a, a stock trader. Um, so I, I think we're, we're experiencing, I don't, I don't think it's a bubble. I just, I just think that there's, you know, it, it's still in many ways is a young industry. It reinvents, right? You, you have something like cell and gene therapy, which is a very young field in a larger industry of biotechnology. And so biotech has not peaked, you know, we haven't, we haven't arrived and said, okay, we're a mature industry. We're a baby. And, and I think there's a lot of expansion and growth that's going to continue. Um, you know, someday we'll run out of oil, but we're not going to run out of people, I hope. And so there's always going to be a need for our industry and there'll always be capital for the best ideas. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, you mentioned that pharma is saving the world and right now it does feel like that they, that they are. I know I, myself, I can't wait to read the news to see what Moderna and AstraZeneca and, you know, the like are doing. Um, are companies like Lineage that aren't working on COVID-related solutions, are you reaping the benefits of that big biopharma attention? Or do you feel that, okay, the cell and gene therapy companies out there are backburnered for now? Both, both. And, and the reason why I say that is if you look at like a biotech index to, to stay with you know stocks and, and equity valuations, they've been going up and they're going up in you know, I don't want to say in no small part because they're being driven by massive gains by companies like, you know, Moderna and, and others. So, um, so there is a rising tide. Um, but I think, that, you know, the, the rising and, and lowering tide that, you know, that's for ships in the harbor where there's no waves. You know, most of us are out there on the open water. There's peaks and troughs. And, and I think the peaks and troughs are very high and very low. And, and that's where the, the winners get found, right? The, mm -hmm. the most compelling idea is are discovered, the, the smartest money, the smartest investors, you know, there's sort of, you know, there's a period where there's a lot of activity and, you know, you have uh, retail uh, buyers and, and, and mutual, or mutual funds and healthcare dedicated funds and things like that. Um, inevitably, the high quality ideas do get discovered. There, there is um, wheat among the chaff and they, they find a way out and they get onto those, uh, those larger waves and they do benefit in an outsized way. So I think you've got both the background tide of ebbs and flows, inflows and outflows of capital into different sectors. But then within that, which makes it really exciting for investors, you have winners and losers and they can be identified. And uh, sometimes you have to wait a while to see which ones they are. But, um, but I do think that right now there is a, uh, you know, a favorable view of the industry and, um, and there are a lot of companies that are, that, are, that are doing well. But within that, you know, there are degrees of well that, uh, that that are pretty obvious when you see the stock performance of, of some of these companies and, and what they've been able to accomplish on the data production and generation side. I love the fact that you can take a a, a time worn cliche like the rising tide lifts all ships and and really analyze that, shoot holes in it, break it down, take it out into the ocean, and give us a better <laughs> a better understanding. <laughs> the uh, 
earlier, I wanted to make sure we also caught on to talked about the the new normal of what we can expect once this is behind us. So just very quickly, um, you you kept referencing when things go back to normal. Will they really be normal, especially for cell and gene companies? What what will the new normal look like? Just as, just like there was a before 9-11 and an after 9-11, there's a before COVID-19 and an after COVID-19 for cell and gene therapy companies. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I say new normal um, because it's positive, right? Everybody wants, everybody misses what things were like. And so, you know, it's positive to say new normal, but there'll be some changes for sure. Um, just like for, you know, 9-11, you know, there's changes at the airport even if you don't really think about it that way, the, the way that we did you know, years ago. Uh, for cell and gene therapy, um, you know, I think some of those changes will be on the regulatory side. So you're, you're talking about, you're talking about um, a field, a discipline, which, for which the primary, um, the primary assets are living cells. The complexity of a whole cell compared to the complexity of a discrete molecule, you know, aspirin versus any cell, a red blood cell, mm -hmm. um, the complexity is is an, uh, almost uh, unimaginable. So when you take a whole cell and you put it into the body, you're talking about billions of interactions. And so the industry for many years has worked so hard to understand how a single molecule changes a disease state or, or the trajectory of a disease. Now we're talking about putting in whole cells. It, it, it almost seems impossible to use the traditional tools uh, the analytical tools and the outcome tools, even the yardsticks of safety in cell and gene therapy, the way that we use them for small molecules or, or antibodies. So the, the complexity of what we are doing needs to be addressed and, and frankly embraced by the agency and, and uh, by the FDA and other areas. Um, but I think that they and, and others are quite aware that cell and gene therapy is, is clearly here to stay. It is growing. You can, you can track the numbers of clinical studies that are being done. And so there's a, there's a tremendous amount of, of work to put in place the, uh, the appropriate expectations and policies and procedures for this new field because um, the, the, the field's not going away. This is, <laughs> this is not temporary. I, I think it's actually in its earliest days. People would say, oh, 10 years ago, it was in its earliest days. So no, no, no. Ten years ago, it was still sort of conceptual, right? Time magazine cover, great ideas. We're going to cure the world. But now we're at the point where we're actually generating the clinical data from these programs. And so there's been a maturation in the field, and the regulatory and the manufacturing and all these different uh, aspects of product development need to be able to keep pace. And so I think that that's one of the things that that we're going to see. We're going to see that some of the changes coming out of the COVID um, crisis are that we're going to try and figure out how to apply some of those, um, uh, some of the factors of speed and creativity and reasonableness into this new field. And there'll be mistakes from time to time and, and you know, we'll reverse them, but eventually, you know, through trial and error, which is, you know, frankly, that's the scientific process as well. Through trial and error, we'll figure out, a, you know, the best path. All right. Well, speaking of speed and creativity and, the future, uh, as we near end our end our time here, you know, talk to us a little bit about. Uh, give us a quick date up, uh, update on what's in your pipeline. Well, uh, Lineage uses pluripotent stem cells to treat disease. So we start with cells 
that we from which we can manufacture specific cells in your body. So we manufacture a special kind of retina cell and we transplant those retina cells to the body to treat uh, a problem with vision called dry AMD. We can manufacture a different kind of cell called an oligodendrocyte and we transplant oligodendrocytes into the body to treat injury following spinal cord in uh, following a spinal cord injury. So we're trying to regain greater mobility in patients. And we can also manufacture a form of immune cell called a dendritic cell. And we use those to present antigens to the body for cancer. So our technology is that we can manufacture three different discrete cell types that your body needs to treat or address some disease or condition. And then we put those cells into your body to replace the ones that are inadequate or dying or, or have been lost. So it's, it's really cell therapy married to transplant medicine. Yeah, can you? Uh, I'm I'm not anticipating that you can, but but can can you share uh, any kind of forward looking statements around where you might go next? What might what what might be the next uh, target indication uh, in, in your pipeline, or is that uh, not not for public consumption? Sort of. So what what I can <laughs> the cell lines that we use, um, there are hundreds of them that have been approved by the government to to be used for for federal research and everything. These cell lines are pluripotent, which means they can become any of the cell types in your body. So, it, you know, big picture, dreamy, long-term, our goal is to be the clear leader in a field of allogeneic cell transplants. So that means taking cells out of a freezer and injecting them into a patient to cure, treat disease, and, and doing that with minimal safety or procedural issues. And today, we only are making three different cell types, the retina cells, the spinal cord cells, and the dendritic cells. But the lines that we use are capable of becoming any of the 200 cell types in the human body. So conceptually, we could become the Amazon of cell therapy, right? Meaning being, oh. right? We could be the best source of many different cell types for many different diseases. Uh, and there are these advantages from which cell therapy has over other approaches. And, and that's where we're trying to establish a beachhead is in the eye, in the spinal cord, using dendritic cells, you know, from there, the sky's the limit. So today we don't have any announcements about, you know, clinical program number four or anything like that, but the platform technology does provide the potential to be able to manufacture any different cell type. You just need the recipe. And so we have three recipes that we use in the clinic today. We work on other recipes. Uh, and ultimately you could imagine that, you know, we could make any number of different cell types. And there are other companies that are doing that working on things like liver cells and kidney cells. Um, we're going for the, the where we think the probabilities of success are the highest right now. Um, and those are discrete compartments. The eye is a compartment. You can see what's going on looking backwards into the eye. So yeah. monitor the process. Spinal cord, you do an MRI. You can see if the cells are there. Um, you can measure how a patient's mobility, if they gained mobility that they wouldn't have gained, you know, it's pretty easy to measure that. Um, so, you know, maybe someday we're going to have solutions in cell therapy for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and autism and all sorts of things that you could imagine that were talked about a decade ago. Uh, but right now we, we've got to get the low hanging fruit. We've got to have some wins in, in easier areas. And, and as I say, that's where we start and, and we grow from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, as you, as you move towards becoming the Amazon of, of cell therapies, I would just encourage you to make sure you choose your third party logistics providers very wisely. I have people showing up delivering packages for Christmas and U-Haul vans today. I'm, I'm tracking packages that are, are, are lost that I need before Christmas. It's a, uh, you know, Amazon's a very complicated, complicated <laughs> machine. I, I encourage you, 
you know, at the, the, that, uh, that, that last mile delivery is oh so important. Matt, I feel it because, uh, my, my blue apron dinner, uh, delivery showed up at 9 45 PM last night. And I, I, that was too late. Too <laughs> so, late. Yeah. Far, far too late. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good, uh, a good place to wrap things up here, Brian. I want to, I want to thank you for joining us. I always enjoy, uh, always enjoy speaking with you. It's been a great conversation full of good information for our listeners. I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's good talking with you guys today. Thanks, Brian. So that's Aaron Harris and Brian Cully. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Check out the plethora of resources that Cytiva makes available to new and emerging biotechs at CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A LifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. If you like the show, subscribe, give us a good review. And if you like keeping up with your peers and the latest trends in biotech and cell and gene therapies, visit cellandgene.com, visit bioprocessonline.com, sign up for our newsletters. And in the meantime, thanks for listening.